Hello and welcome to the Ball Things Considered podcast. My name is Michael, aka Sunny Day, and here with me is Nick Demento, the host of Drawing It Up. Hey, Michael, how are, you, how are we doing today? I'm pretty wonderful, man. The date today is August 31st, 2020. Today we're going to be talking about the Eastern Conference Funeral Pod, as we call it, which is giving a last farewell and putting a button on the seasons of the four Eastern Conference teams that were eliminated in the first round. Yeah, long, long season, tough for everybody, but some teams got to go. But we're here to give our respects and hopefully to look forward. Some teams have a bright future. Some teams, not so much, unfortunately, but we will get into that. Yep. So I was thinking we'll start at the top slash the bottom, depending on how you want to look at it, with the eight seed. Yeah, that's So the that, of course, that's the yeah. Bottom. Yeah. <laughs> They'll pick 15th in the draft. That's halfway to the top. So, of course, the eight seed this year was the Orlando Magic. They went 33-40 and 40 over a truncated season. And they lost in five games to the Milwaukee Bucks. No shame in losing to the one seed. At least I took a game. Yeah. Uh, what's what's your first thought on the Magic's season? See, when I look at the Magic, first off, for anyone that does not know, they had the fifth highest payroll in the NBA. And for the eighth seed in a weak conference, I that just comes across as ridiculous to me. And I look at this roster... And I just don't see a plan. I see you have Vucevic for the next three, four years. You got Aaron Gordon, Evan Fournier. But this is a losing team in the Eastern Conference. I don't know what the next step is for this team to start to compete. Because you you do have a great player in Vucevic. I thought he played great this series. And honestly, I think he's a player that could potentially be a number two three guy on a contender but because he's stuck on this Orlando team I just don't see where they're going especially since you look at their roster the only guy that was really in their rotation that isn't on the books for next year is DJ Augustine but sheesh I mean do you see a plan here because I sure as hell don't yeah, like, DJ Augustine coming off the books is going to take all of $7 million with him. Michael Carter-Williams will take $2 million. So they're basically going to be in the exact same cap hell. Like, they'll probably be top five-ish payroll again next year. And they remind me of, like, two things. Like, super big, like the current 76ers, which we'll get to in a minute. Clearly didn't work. And then they remind me of the Heat, like, pre-Jimmy Butler. Like, dudes like James Johnson and Deion Waiters, Kelly Olynyk, like a bunch of... 10 to 20 million dollar guys that like are pretty good basketball players but they're never going anywhere really winning around they're just treading water like their best player is Vucevic and like he's an all-star center like that's pretty good but then they draft Mo Bamba they draft Chumo Keke who was projecting as a power forward like they sign Kem Birch back so that Mohamed Bamba doesn't even play like they sign Al Farouk Aminu for a 30 million dollars guaranteed and he was only playing 20 minutes, like, they're just a bunch, like, big burly dudes in a game where it's all about shooting now, and their deals don't look great. Aaron Gordon, like, he's a bona fide power forward, small ball center, and he's got to play on the wing a lot. 
mm-hmm. because otherwise they're not finding minutes for him, like the former number two pick. And so, do you think Aaron I don't Gordon, really know the direction. Do you think Aaron Gordon is one of these guys that if we got him out of Orlando, he could really pop off? Like I'm saying, like become like a perennial All Star, become something completely different than what we've seen from him because. Like I said about Vucevic, I just feel like they're kind of stuck in this this mediocre hole. Yeah, like, he's only 24 years old, and the easy comparison for him is Blake Griffin. Like, power forward, can jump out of the gym, like, can yam like crazy, and his offense is going to be, like, rim first and moving backwards. Like, Blake Griffin is somebody who's added as much to their game as anybody, like, since entering. Like, Blake Griffin used to only dunk. Now he can handle the ball, like he can get to the rack, he can shoot threes, like he can pass. Came a long way from just like 99 shot inside, 99 dunk. So that's like his path to success, I think, is he'll never be as good as Blake Griffin because Blake Griffin's like a borderline Hall of Fame player. But try to add different things to his game all the time because his game is becoming more and more dated. But yeah, 24 years old, like I still like him a lot, but unless the be- the front court of the Magic opens up a lot, like, it's never going to be for him in Orlando. Like, there's just too much going on for him to get where I think he needs to go. For sure. And another point I wanted to bring up is that they have this weird mix of they got some promising young players. Markel Fultz, while he's more than likely never going to be the player we thought he was going to be out of the draft... You got Jonathan Isaac, who's been riddled with injury, you know, just bad luck. But every time he's on the floor, I keep thinking he's getting better and better. You have these young guys that seem promising, but at the tail end, your highest paid guy is 29. You know, he's a little bit on the older side, especially for a center. So He's about to turn 30. Like, what's our plan here? Are we trying to compete with these older guys, or are we trying to build up these younger guys potentially turn them into a championship team because honestly I think if you're playing this game you're playing to win a championship but to win a championship you gotta have some semblance of a plan so if we're trying to build up these guys how do we do it and I think one first step and you touched on this earlier is besides Vucevic at 28 mil they do have a lot of these guys at close to 10 mil 12 mil, 17 mil contracts, and a lot of times, especially on contending teams, you don't see a lot of those contracts. You see the two or three guys that are getting paid 35 plus mil, maybe even 40, and then you have a bunch of guys that are getting paid the minimum, uh, you know, on trade exceptions, whatever way that teams could scrounge up guys to fill up the rest of the roster. Stars and the best fitting role players. Mm Mm-hmm. But a lot of these contending teams would probably give up assets in the form of young players, draft picks, etc. for guys like an Evan Fournier, an Al Farouk Aminu. Those are guys that, as an Yeah, eighth, reasonable contracts, guy, great win-now players. Mm-hmm. You can match those salaries easy because it's just it's easier to add them up in a trade. And accumulate assets that way and for those contending teams they get these guys as their eighth ninth man in the rotation maybe even seven they can make a real impact 
Uh, yeah, I think so too. Like, with the magic is they're not going to get a lot worse if they get rid of Evan Fournier and Terrence Ross. Like, even though those guys do a lot of heavy lifting and add up to more than 30 points a game, like, we know exactly who those dudes are. And the numbers that they put up are because they just happen to be in this situation. Like, if Jonathan Isaac, and he won't play next year, which is, like, a shame. I think he's going to be, like, a max player if he stays healthy, like a top 20-ish player. Like, if he took all of Terrence Ross's minutes this past season, like, the Magic would have been basically just as good. And considering the nine seed was distance in the East, like, they would still make the playoffs. And that helps Isaac get better a lot. And that takes X amount of dollars off your books. So I think for them, like, letting the young guys play more, Markel Fultz gets better every single time he steps on the court and still has that crazy potential. Like, he'll randomly drop a triple-double. He'll randomly have crazy highlights. Like, his flashes are, like, star-worthy. You're not getting a lot worse, if at all, by letting those guys play. Like, Fultz today is better than DJ Augustine, like, right now. Mm Mm-hmm. So it'll be good for them that DJ Augustine is coming off their books and Fultz is, like, getting the keys. Like, Fultz and Isaac are both star potential players. And then you build around that with, like, current very good player Vucevic and open it up for Gordon if you don't want to trade him. Yeah. And I think that's really promising. Mm-hmm. Because I'm just I'm looking at guys like Terrence Ross, and I'm, just, I'm not seeing where those guys are really taking you. And, you know, they've also had some bad luck. Like, hopefully Mo Bamba, he left the bubble a couple weeks ago uh, to undergo analysis on the long-term effects of COVID-19. And we, of course, wish him all the best with his health and all that. But that's been a draft pick that they thought was going to be great that just hasn't panned out at all. And when you make bad choices in the draft, sometimes you have to do something to recuperate. You have to do something to kind of make up for that mistake. And usually the way teams have approached that is accumulating more draft assets so that maybe you can get into the lottery again, maybe get a high draft pick. But I think the route to do that, to root, the route to build around these young guys, starts with taking a look at these middle contract guys and thinking, okay, what can I do with this? Who thinks that if I add this guy, we are deep and we are contending? Yeah, like, these teams will be, like, picking around the 25-ish range, but two of those that two of those adds up to, like, a near lottery pick. Mm-hmm. Like, you said, if you miss in the draft, like, you better make in the draft the next time. Like, just keep swinging. And I think Fultz and Isaac are, like, legit great super high-ceiling players to have. So they got to work around those guys. Hopefully Bamba is able to get on the track where he was, like, to be that top six pick. And, like, I love all their young guys. They're just using them weirdly and, like, not playing them in favor of contending for the eight seed. Like, I would rather lose those games, have one more lottery pick, but know what you've got with your young guys and, like, let your young guys develop. And when we're looking at the balance of the Eastern Conference next year, like I have a hard time slotting these guys into the playoffs again. Yeah, like I think the Eastern Conference playoffs next year are probably going to be one through seven stays the same, and the eight seeds up for grabs. 
like off the top of my head, maybe Washington and Charlotte can compete for that along with Orlando. Atlanta. Orlando shouldn't really want that eight seed. Yeah, Atlanta definitely. Like they were bad this year, but they've got so many young guys that you can see them leaping at any time. Like if you're the Magic, you don't really want that eight seed because you know it's going to happen, and you can't do better than that eight seed feasibly. Like there's nobody on that player on the roster that's going to turn into a superstar and carry you to a top seven seed given who's in the east so i think it's a good time to retool instead of totally rebuild because you got some stuff and the last player that i really like on the magic who i think i maybe brought up in passing is chuma okeke out of auburn who they picked who didn't play a single game this year but was a top 20 pick and honestly i really like him and hopefully they free up space for him because he could help him a lot, and he redshirted, which makes him a Rookie of the Year candidate. Mm-hmm. Weak class, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Speaking of redshirts, though, like, I think that's a good transition to move into the seven seed, which was the Brooklyn Nets, and they had a notable redshirt, Kevin Durant. You might have heard of him. Can we count Kyrie as a redshirt? He basically didn't play enough. I think in football I mean, now you can play like five games or something. He might fall into the NBA category of a red shirt. I don't know. I'm just yeah, especially bitter. considering he didn't play a playoff game. He was on my fantasy yeah, 20 this games. team this year, and he screwed me. So he played twenty games this year. We can call that an effective red shirt. Yeah, it's just going to make me feel better about my losses. Yeah, no, you got hosed. It's not your <laughs> fault. Damn it, Kyrie. But yeah, I think. To talk about the Brooklyn Nets, like I think they're legit title contenders. I think Kyrie and KD, obviously next year they're eliminated. I think Kyrie and KD are going to be as good a duo as we have. Like They're going to get it faster than a duo typically will of two stars because even though they haven't played together, they've been in the same building for a year and a half by the time next season starts. So we won't have the growing pains of, say... Paul George and Kawhi Leonard where they kind of overlap and it's a your turn my turn type of thing I think they're gonna hit the ground running next year I mean the Brooklyn Nets they're really I mean they're the freaking White Walkers in from Game of Thrones all this year it's just all this year we've been talking about all these Eastern Conference teams the Bucks the Heat the Celtics and then just looming along the horizon yeah they really are we have a guy that was probably the best player in the NBA before he goes down with injury, and Kevin Durant, his tear back-to-back Finals MVP would have been three-time champion. Exactly, and then a guy that has hit, probably hit the biggest shot in my lifetime in Game Seven, and I still I everyone rips on Kyrie Irving. He's had all the bad teammate talk, but I always just go back to that shot, and I think he's the perfect number two. Like, on offense, that, like, a lot of his bad press came from Boston. Like, I think you're exactly right, is with KD now, he'll be a lot more like he was in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. His efficiencies will go way up. Okay, I got a theory on the Kyrie Irving. scary, because he's already, like, almost 50-40-90. Yeah, that's true. With Kyrie, I got a theory on the bad teammate thing. And it's not that he's a bad teammate. I've never thought that. I just think the guy's freaking weird. So, hear me out on this. His, 
I think it's his first year with the Celtics where they get Gordon Hayward. Gordon Hayward gets hurt first game. And then yeah. playoffs, Kyrie gets hurt. And then that Celtics team with Terry Rozier, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, they still take the Cavs to seven games in yeah, the Eastern Conference game from the finals. finals. So, I think Kyrie... In theory. I think Kyrie's just kind of this weird dude in that he did go to the Celtics because he wanted to be the man. He wanted to be the leader that LeBron was to him. And he wanted to see these young guys like Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and he wanted to be the guy that mentors them and brings them along. On the other end of that is his whole flat earth theory, Brad Stevens, what does government mean to you? All that kind of stuff. So I think... Kyrie was kind of out of the loop during that playoff run and then next the next year the summer going into that season he tries to impress upon himself as this mentor to these young guys and they're like yeah dude what the hell are you talking about there's a there's a better phrase than saying that he like lost the locker room like which is the thing that happened head coaches all the time but like I totally see what you mean like he was the leader and he was still the on-court best player but he had just gotten there too mm-hmm. like those guys were brad stevens draft picks they were grown like dudes like marcus smart were still the tone setters on the defensive end that when you acquire a player who's like instantly your best player is a weird chemistry weird dynamic well and i think with all those young guys they're just looking at Kyrie, who's He's trying to take charge, and they're looking at him. It's like, we don't need you. We did this yeah, without exactly, you. and they they proved that to themselves. Yeah, and also as a young guy, especially Jason Tatum, who his coming out party was that playoffs. He played absolutely amazing, and then his touches get limited by Kyrie. And he's just thinking, why can't I just have Terry Rozier pass me the ball every five seconds again? That was awesome. I don't need Kyrie taking up crap shots every five seconds. Yeah, I don't think Kyrie's a bad teammate. I think it was a weird situation. Yeah, I think had that playoff run gone differently, the story on Kyrie would be a lot different. And part of the reason I think he went to the Nets is because he didn't get what he wanted. He didn't become the man. He didn't become the mentor to these young guys. And so once he realized that that wasn't going to happen... He writes up his good friend KD, his other good friend DeAndre Jordan, and I was like, because in his head he's like, okay, if I'm not going to be the mentor, I'm at least going to have fun with my friends. You know, like, it's a lot more complicated than that, but... Yeah, get somebody that good and try to win championships. Yeah, and then he doesn't have to be the mentor anymore. He probably doesn't want that anymore. He just wants the ball now, which is why I'm so excited about this team because Kyrie isn't going to be as dragged down by the bullshit. He's just going to be balling. And what'd you say? You said he played 20 games this season? I mean... Yep. I mean, the Nets played 72, so... In some of those games... You want to add a couple. Man. I think his, his like, first or second game with the Nets, he put up, like, 50. Like, the man, when he's just allowed to ball, can ball. And... The other guy we haven't talked about yet, but I want to hear your thoughts on him, who really made an impact on me in the bubble and during the playoffs, is Caris LeBert. And I want... Yeah, I love him. Like, I wrote this in my notes, and 
like I think about Brooklyn a good amount because, like you said, they're lurking. They're title contenders. I think unless the Bucks blow us away and, like, make a legit shot at the Larry O'Brien trophy, I think they're going to be the best team in the East next year. I think they keep Karis LeVert. I think he's their third star. Like, wings are the most important position in the sport. You're going to be going against Boston and Milwaukee who, like, do all of their damage around the wing. Like, Boston's trio of wings, Hayward, Jalen Brown, and Jason Tatum, like, is definitely the best trio of wings in the game. Mm -hmm. So you got KD, but then you want another one, and Karis LeVert's, like, star material. Like, he showed that, and the Nets were supposed to be, like, the worst team in the bubble, maybe. Like, they seemed like the practice squad Nets. Mm -hmm. And they still ran things. Like, I think he's a star... Dinwiddie, I don't know yet. I don't know if he's your fourth option. I don't know how he fits. Like, they're going to need a second point guard and, like, ball handling type of guard. But do you think Dinwiddie would buy into switching to shooting guard and suddenly being low maintenance when his whole career has been point guard and using the ball? Do you think he could? I don't think that's as much Spencer Dinwiddie's role. But, honestly, the thing that has impressed me the most with Levert in the playoffs is his basketball IQ and his feel for the game. That's a man. He can put up a lot of assists for you. He can take some ball handling away from Kyrie when you want Kyrie running off ball, running through screens, things like that. He can handle the ball and run the offense, and he really showed that when he was the guy without him, when he without Kyrie. They just said, okay, the team is yours. And he really was able to facilitate that offense for them. So that's one of the big reasons why I think Levert should be their other three. But the other side of the Levert conversation is that his extension kicks in next year. And then he can become an absolute huge trade piece. If you're looking for a guy like Bradley Beal or someone else, like a big star to put alongside Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. Carice LeVert is the guy that you can put in a trade as your side, your your foot to throw into yeah. that deal. Yeah, like the centerpiece. Mm -hmm. See, I think I like the way his deal kicks in and that he's low. And like I said, I think he can be the third star. And you seem to think that he can handle the ball and be a shooting guard, which... I tend to agree with because you don't want to be super small. So let me throw a lineup at you. Do you think they're better off with Kyrie, Levert at the two, Joe Harris, KD, and Jared Allen as the five? Oh, hard. And then... Yeah, then have Spencer Dinwiddie come and just destroy yeah. second Yeah, so do units. you think Dinwiddie is the best option as a six-man, or they should trade him because their bench is super weak? Like, when you're building a bench, would you rather have, like, a great sixth man or trade this guy and probably get two good bench pieces? Because their bench is so, so thin after him. That's true. But I always lean on the side of I would rather have a better... I want my sixth man to be better than the fourth and the fifth guy I'm putting on the court. Because I think being able to establish momentum off the bench is so important. And that's why I would keep Spencer Dinwiddie in that six-man role. Because he can still take the offense. He can score. 
and he's just going to be better for your team beating up on second units when he is. He's a starter caliber player in this league. Another thing we do have oh, to yeah. mention is that Joe Harris's contract is up after this season. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I think they definitely pay him. Maybe you overpay him or not like on purpose, but you keep Joe Harris in the building. Like you let him know that he's a priority and you want him back because like I said, I think he fits perfectly in that starting five. Like Kyrie and Katie do their thing. Lavert can even play the bench unit with Dinwiddie a lot. Like he's in between, but he's the third star. And Harris fits perfectly on both of those units. He's low maintenance. He plays good defense. He's won the three-point shootout. Like nobody's going to space better than him that you can get. And I don't think he'll cost too much. I would be. I think I would he's be worried about like super good. When historically, when we see weak free agent classes someone gets overpaid bad yeah and i could see a team that i could see that being uh, joe harris sucks being like we gotta do something and then just throwing money at joe harris but the thing with joe harris is that he's 28 and it's kind of been in the league so i think if that were to happen that would happen with davis bertans but i could see that with joe harris too and you're right like it's so weak that some team might really try and take him away. But also the Nets are contending for a championship, so Joe Harris will mm. know that. Like He's like, would I rather make this much more money? And I can't speak to the guy. I don't know how much he cares about the money versus the title. But the Nets have the familiarity going for them in, addis- in addition to he probably won't be able to sign with a better team. Yeah, and I think another side of that is if I'm the Nets... Joe Harris has to be one of my first priorities because you have the rest of the guys on contracts. You still got Tarian Prince, still got DeAndre Jordan, some of these other guys. And then you're also hoping to entice some veterans on the minimum who are ring chasing. Yeah, exactly. I'm excited for the Nets next year. Like... Even if they don't trade Levert or Dinwiddie, which people seem to think they certainly will, like we just hashed out, I could see them keeping both, and I could see both of them working. Karis Levert in the bubble was so exciting, and he plays great defense. Like, their six best players are as good as any team's six best players, if not the best. Mm -hmm. And they fit together, and they'll have continuity. Like... That's pretty scary. I think they're legit title contenders next year. They're probably my most excited team to watch next year. Yeah, it's just it's going to be great to get Kevin Durant back. It's people have almost forgotten. Yeah, he's a joy to watch. What I think he's the best pure scorer in this league from all three levels. Just unbelievably smooth. Just so joyful. Well, all right, let's transition then to the KD of the bubble, which needs no further introduction. We all know that's TJ Warren, the man, the myth, Mr. the legend, and his team, the Indiana Pacers, who went 45-28 and 28 this year, 73 games, and were swept by the five-seed Heat. So technically they had home court, but they were injured. I think that's kind of 
the story of their season, their eulogy, this funeral, is Malcolm Brogdon came back from injury in the bubble, as did Oladipo. They had to get up to speed. Demonis Sabonis didn't play in the bubble. Jeremy Lamb didn't play in the bubble. Like, they had a really tough go of it. And we're still competitive. Like, the series against the Heat were close. They still played their brand of defense. So, what stands out to you? What do you think the story of the Nets, the Pacers, season was or what they should do next? To me, the story of the Pacers this season had to be DeMontis Sabonis. And with Miles yeah. Turner out a lot of the season, we really saw what Sabonis could do from passing end, from a scoring end, defensively. We really saw what he can be. But a flip... All the way to his first All-Star appearance. Absolutely. And the, but the other thing you got to consider with that is a lot of this came in the absence of Turner. And that's the big question with the Pacers moving forward is what do we do about these two? Do we keep them together? Do we just try to make it work? There's another team that we're going to talk about in a few short minutes that is attempting the same thing. And when you just try to make two players that when the statistics, when the on-court result shows you that it doesn't work, it's just not going to yeah. freaking work. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Like, we all saw what Sabonis could do switching over to play mostly center this year. Like, instead of being power forward and him and Turner being two bigs, like, coexisting, Sabonis, with the brunt of the big man duties put up 18 and a half, 12 and a half, and five assists, and he shot 54% from the field. Like, he's clearly the better player between him and Miles Turner, and I think you build around him. And, like, one thing I think with the Pacers is, even with injuries, watching them play in the bubble, like, you could tell there was a lot of turn-taking and a lot of, like, over-dribbling. Like, their best five players are Malcolm Brogdon, Victor Oladipo, TJ Warren, Sabonis, and Miles Turner. Just, like, position-wise, that was one through five. And the first three of them, like, dribble a lot. Like, they need the ball in their hands to succeed. And then Sabonis is, like, a playmaking big. Like I just said, he averages five assists at center. So that just sounds like too many mouths to feed. So I think they definitely need to make a trade. And I think Indiana's really holding on to, in a way, a lot of Indiana fans are, is a couple of years ago, Miles Turner, people were just salivating over the guy. My God. Everyone was like... He had one of the best age 20 seasons that we've seen. He was unbelievable. He's 24 now. So for reference, he's had three seasons, or this was his fourth season since then. Yeah, so that season was four years ago when, at age 20, he put up 15 and 7 with over two blocks, shot 51% from the field, and got defensive player of the year votes. And everyone was salivating on the guy because they're like, he's so young. Wait till he takes that next step. And then we waited. And then we waited. And there was no next step. And he's worse, like... At best, we can say he's plateaued, 
it might be unfair to say he's worse because Sabonis wasn't around during that season and now he is. But he's plateaued as hard as anyone we've seen. He hasn't shot above 50% since that one season. That one season had his career high in points and rebounds. Like, I think it's time for, like I said, the Pacers to make a trade. And I think Miles Turner's name comes up definitely. And honestly, I could see another happening. Like, between Brogdon, Oladipo, and Warren, I think they should trade another one. And to me, that answer comes up Warren. See, I... I want to see more of Warren next year. And I would honest, I would push back on the idea that after Turner, we need to trade somebody else. Because I think you could get a lot back for Turner. But right now, the real fear yeah, I think- is the fact that after next season, Old Depot's contract is up. He's an unrestricted free agent. And the point of this... I think they pay him. You have to pay him. But here's the right. thing about Old Depot... Is he going to sign if there's the same, a similar end result as to this season or the season before? I can see Oladipo being one of these guys. He's just a dog, man. He just wants to freaking win. I could see him jumping to somewhere like the Heat or someone that's where, with the addition of him, they're going to be contending. So... The way I look at Miles Turner and a potential trade there is we're not only trading him so that the Sabonis thing works out. We're trading him to bolster our own team to make us more of a contender to really compete in the East. Because to me, next year's playoffs is the pitch for Oladipo to stay in Indiana. Now, I do believe that Indiana already has a leg up on the competition because they're the guys that really gave Oladipo the chance to flourish. So, do you think that Oladipo is going to be that good again next season? Like, since his injury, he has not been the same. And he only played 19 games this year. So, it's not fair to judge him based off this season. But, do you have confidence that he'll be, like, a star in free agency? Like, worth worrying over that much? Like, I think they build around him and Brogdon, and that's why I said after trading Turner, Warren would be the next most likely to go if they made a second trade. Like, he didn't even shoot 40% from the field this year. Do you think they want to build around Brogdon and Oladipo? I think you stumbled into a great player on a trade that everyone ripped you on when they gave up Paul George. And when you get lucky like that, I don't think lightning strikes twice. And whenever you hear Oladipo talk and you see people talk about him, you hear about how much of a hard worker he is and how much he just loves working on his game. And whenever I see a guy like that, I'm all in. Even when they're injury bound, because even when they get injured, they are going to work their way back up harder than anyone else. So... I'm not saying that Oladipo is this like franchise cornerstone in the sense of a lot of guys we've seen in the league, not like a Zion or a Luka. Uh, but Oladipo can be the base of a good contending team. 
and I'm a yeah I think uh, I'm a big believer in the idea that you don't necessarily need one of the top five players in the league to win I believe that you can win with a very deep team if one through ten can all ball out I believe in that kind of format I believe that that team can yeah. make it through the playoffs. And with a team with Oladipo, Brogdon, Warren, Sabonis, and whoever you can get in a Turner trade, that's a team that's deep, and that's a team that's going to fight. Yeah, I think you build around Brogdon, Oladipo, and Sabonis. The thing for me is that I think they have enough scoring like with those three stars. All of them can put the ball in the hole to where with pure scorer TJ Warren, like you might want to use him and his asset value to do other things. But other than that, like they're still set up really well, even though they've disappointed a couple of years and had horrible luck with injuries. Like they have a talented roster and like that's a great top five players. And Jeremy Lamb, who we haven't even really talked about, would be a great sixth man. And with perfect health and in the right situation for 82 games he's like a sixth man contender so i think you're right that their way to go is not try and find stars but get deep yeah for sure for sure but all in all i like this team i'm excited to see how competitive the east is going to be moving forward we're seeing this with the eastern conference semifinals starting that both of those matchups are just boxing brawls and next season yeah. I think for the first time in a while we're going to see seven maybe even eight teams that can all throw punches at the very least like they're gonna make you yeah. fight for it it's a perfect last transition too speaking of fighting oh God. we got a giant team if you made a team of boxers out of NBA teams, I think the Philadelphia 76ers would probably be the most successful because their point guard, the smallest dude usually, is six foot ten. Their power forward has played center his whole career and did it at an all-star level in Al Horford. The final funeral, the 43-30 six-seeded Philadelphia 76ers who were swept by the three-seed Boston Celtics. The story of their season, to me was just terrible fit mixed with Ben Simmons got hurt so he didn't play a playoff game but I honestly don't think it would have mattered their roster construction is just infuriating you've got dudes who can't shoot you've got dudes who are too big like I said you've got center Al Horford being thrown a hundred million dollars to do almost nothing and regress and then you let Jimmy Butler walk who's clearly doing big things instantly so that you could make this roster construction happen. Yeah. What's your what's your eulogy? What do you think of when you think 2019-26ers? When I think of the 2019-26ers, it actually starts the previous season. I first look at that triple bounce shot from Quiet Leonard, Game 7, Eastern Conference semifinals that goes in and ends the Sixers season. And I remember seeing Joel Embiid just in absolute tears, just a shell of himself in the tunnel going into the locker room. 
And I remember him after that game. It's like, I gotta do more. We gotta be better. When I saw that, I really thought, okay, this is it. And this is me speaking from my own experience as an athlete and hearing interviews from other athletes. When you get beat like that, when you're so close, when you put everything that you have on the floor and still come up short, the guys that I want by my side are the ones that respond to that with an absolute fire underneath them. And I really thought Joel Embiid was going to come to the season with that fire. He said that he would. He stated like those very public goals that he planned to win 60 games, be the one seed, win defensive player, win MVP, and win the championship. Obviously, he went 0 for 5, wasn't close to any of them. But I thought that he seemed like that motivation was there, like in a PR sense, but then you're right. He didn't show it on the floor at all. Like the only place where it matters, those 94 feet, he didn't have it at all. And then he got the opportunity to showcase himself. Like his second star, Ben Simmons, was out for the whole playoffs. So it was all on him, the Embiid show. And he played horribly. They couldn't take a game off the Celtics, who have no centers near his caliber. He was like he put up big numbers, but he was flustered and frustrated, and wasn't the player that he and we know he could be. See, and with Joel all year and during the playoffs, all I'm hearing is, "I gotta do more." Shut up. Do more. I'm sick of hearing that. Yeah. For real. You have, you got to be better. Be better. You've been in this league. You've been to the point. You lost to the team that won the finals by a triple bounce shot. And then you come out and show me this. Show me some fight. Show me some goddamn pride. Don't let yourself just lay down and get beat like that. Yeah, he's too good for that. Like, he really, really is too good. Like he, like you said, he was the best player on a team that was a single dice roll away from beating the champions. Like, they would have taken care of Golden State in the finals just as well. I don't know if they would have gotten past Giannis and the Bucks, but if they played Golden State with the same injuries Golden State had, they would be the champions right now. They would be the Raptors. But they got a bad bounce, and he sat with it for so long. And he didn't take it. He didn't do anything with it. He never got into right. the shape that he's needed to be. He's never shown the effort. He's always been this guy where he has these flashes where you're like, oh my god, is this like a top three player in the league? Like, what is this? But it only comes out in these flashes. When you look at greats, they don't slow down. When I look at Jordan, when I look at... Yeah, his motor is the biggest difference. There's no motor there. Or, I can't say no motor, yeah, like his... but... Just give me some fire. His... Show me that you can lead this team. The fact that even games three and four, I really thought Joel was going to come in and be like, we're not getting punked. We're not just going to leave like this. 
I, I really thought he was going to show us something, especially when you have freaking Daniel Tyson and his canter on you. When you have the biggest mismatch on the court, figure out something. Yeah. And don't pout because you have Tobias Harris and Al Horford with you, who, to be fair, are not giving you any help or shake. But they're good players. Like, they can. They were bad. I don't think the season, like, was all on Embiid, the way they got swept. He could have taken a game by himself. He, like, was the best player. Not in that series was he the best player, but on the rosters of those two teams, Philadelphia has the best mm-hmm. player. And they couldn't win a game. Like, And I don't even care that's rough. if Joel could have won them a game. That's an indictment of him. I just wanted him to freaking fight. Just try. Just all those games were just complete snooze fests by the end of it. And it's like, this guy's, you know, it's 1-2-3 Cancun. Let's get out of the bubble. I'm sick of this. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, you really are crying last year. Telling us that you want to get back to this point. Well, you know what you got to do to get back to this point? You got to be way better than what you just showed. So, so let's move on. I'm getting frustrated talking <laughs> about Embiid. Um, are you on the same page as me? I think that they should trade one of the two. I think it's clear that they don't work, the two being Embiid and Simmons. And I think they should trade Embiid because I think Simmons is more conducive to winning. And because we don't live in a vacuum, the Sixers have their current payroll which is maxed out Tobias Harris, $97 million Al Horford, and Josh Richardson, like, all on the books. So I think Ben Simmons wins more with those guys than does Embiid. Plus, Embiid plays an old game. So I don't know that a team with Embiid as their best player can win the championship. Like, you have to have an astounding roster. And... Last year, Sixers did. Like we said, they could have easily beaten the Raptors and could have been the champions. But that was an extraordinary team. They're not going to get that good again with Embiid as their best player. So I think that they should trade him and keep Simmons. Do you agree or disagree? I agree. I agree with the mentality that Ben Simmons is going to be the guy that will get the best out of Tobias Harris and Al Horford. Because right now, I think both of those guys are guys that are dependent on someone else creating a shot, creating a, making a play for them so that they can have a little bit of shooting ability, so that they can do whatever. And I think Ben Simmons creates so much for his teammates, and I think he makes his teammates better. I believe Joel Embiid is the better player between Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Yeah, definitely. because you've paid Tobias Harris and Al Horford so much freaking money, it's an absolute travesty. But because you've paid them, you've backed yourself into this corner where your only option is to trade the best player and hope to... and hope to God that someone's willing to give you enough to in return. If I'm the Sixers, I'm looking at Trey Nodrill and Bede. I'm not thinking I'm going to get 
a player close to his caliber back. But I really think that if you got two or three guys that you could really put around Ben Simmons that are going to help him, that are going to lock him, hopefully shooters, it's for the love of God. I mean, Joel Embiid, he's a guy that's best when he's close to the basket. What do you do for that? You put shooters around him, give him space to operate. When they close in on Joel Embiid, he kicks it out to the shooters. Ben Simmons, what's the game plan there, roster-wise? The exact Same freaking thing. thing. I don't know what's so hard about that. Yeah. I think with Embiid, like, to be fair, even though he's the better player, I don't think he's as conducive to winning, like I said. is He clogs a lot, and he's a worse passer, so if you do surround him with the shooters, like we and logic and analytics say that you should do he's not going to thrive as much as somebody like ben simmons like you want to surround ben simmons with shooters like you said like the bucks do with Giannis, or the rockets with russ or the Cavs 2.0 did with lebron or the mavs do with luca right now like those are some of the top players on the planet who can't shoot threes and they're contending for championships like they are contenders year in and year out like, I think you build around Simmons that way, and you see how you do it. Like, Simmons was second in guard rebounding. The top four was the two Rockets guards, like I said, Russ and Harden, and Luka. Playing modern basketball works. Playing with Embiid loses games. Like, I think Simmons' style is more conducive to winning. And like you said, even if you don't get an Embiid return back, you get pieces that fit in that is better because they're less than the sum of their parts right now so even if you like took Embiid away like if Embiid was the one that got injured and Simmons was healthy they would have done better against the Celtics so to get anything back for Embiid I think makes them like a really good team again it at least can get them into more of a contending fashion I believe and I think it would take trading many many first round draft picks a lot of assets to get off those Tobias Harris now Horford contracts I'm I'm not sure those are yeah I don't think it's worth I'm it. not sure those I are think you try and win with them whatsoever and then in a year or two they'll be movable more and you can assess where you're at yeah. so I think knowing that you're probably stuck with these two guys we gotta go with Ben and Unfortunately, I feel like we're not only giving a funeral for the Sixers this year, we're giving a funeral to the process. Yeah. I mean, would you still consider it the process? Like, with Simmons around and trading Embiid? Well, many people consider Embiid the process on his own, but... Like, his literal nickname is The Process, yeah. What I've always considered The Process... But Embiid was the higher... Or Simmons was the higher draft pick. He was the super tank. And faults. We should be calling Jonathan Simmons and a pick the real process. Well, (laughs) when I look at The Process, what I think of is this idea that we're going to tank, we're going to accumulate draft picks, we're going to accumulate assets... From these high draft picks, we're going to potentially get stars. Many times, they struck out on that. Markel Fultz, they drafted Jahil Okafor, uh, traded for Nerlens Noel. 
all these guys are high draft picks. Yeah, that cost him Drew Holiday, like an already all-star. Absolutely. And all of these guys were high draft picks. None of them panned out, but they did strike on two. And the other side of that was they accumulate all these assets to throw into the trade for the final star. What was supposed to be the final piece. That final piece was Jimmy Butler. And they let him walk away. And then... After like 55 games. After 55. So that they could so that they could pursue Tobias Harris, like extension, and Al Horford. Like they decided Harris and Horford were worth more to them than Jimmy Butler and cap space. Like effectively, J.J. Redick walked because they couldn't pay him. And you didn't need hindsight to see that that was a bad move. Like you could have seen last offseason, and a lot of people did, that, that was stupid. And it wasn't going to work, and they shouldn't have did it. And then it was stupid, and it didn't work, and they should not have done it. So to the process, I think I would say good riddance. Like you said, they hit on two stars, but that's almost a volume thing. Tanking got them so many chances that they hit on two stars, but body of work says they flubbed every single thing else, and that's just who the Sixers were as an organization. And when you establish this idea that our organization is going to be predicated on losing that sticks with you you see a lot of teams that they're not just going to back down they're not going to tank they're going to keep playing they're going to keep fighting because with young guys especially when you just tell them oh go out do whatever doesn't matter whether we win or lose it drags you down. Yeah, purposely putting bad players on the floor. And I think that's yeah. part of the reason why Jimmy Butler got there and was like, I got to get the hell out. These guys aren't... Just like he did in Minnesota. These guys are not on my level. Not essentially player-wise, but they don't want to win as bad as me. Yeah, Jimmy Butler, like I said, 55 games. But you could tell watching the whole playoffs that he was their leader. Like, in 55 games alongside two stars who have only ever worn a Sixers uniform, he was taking the last shots, and he was setting the tone. And when somebody can come in and do that in half a season, your culture wasn't strong to start with. And I think as much as wanting to be the man, like you said, he wanted to be away from that. So he went to Miami, great culture, and with a less talented roster is doing oodles better than the Sixers. In his first year in Miami. Yeah. Unfortunately, we started with the culture. We ended with the process. And it just wasn't enough. I like their future still. Like I said, if they get rid of Embiid, like, I think they really, really ought to. You've got a five of Simmons, a low-maintenance shooter, like... We'll say Buddy Healed because Buddy Healed is worth an Embiid, or the other way around. You could get Healed in an Embiid trade. So say Simmons, low maintenance shooter, Richardson, Tobias Harris, Al Horford plus the bench. Like that team works. You'll see how good Josh Richardson actually is. You saw it a little bit in the bubble. Tobias Harris won't have as much pressure on him, and he was a borderline All Star even in the West. Like. They'll get better. It'll be addition by subtraction, and the roster will make sense. Hopefully. There's a lot of big decisions to make, and we'll see if the Sixers yeah. make these decisions. And that's 
there's a very likely chance that the Sixers get a new coach, someone that says, I can make this work, and they just run it back. And we'll see what happens there, but... I hope not. I hope not, too. But that's a very likely reality. Yeah. And... Like you said, decisions need to be made, and to me the worst thing is no decision, which is let's keep this roster and try again, like you're saying. I don't think Brett Brown was the problem. I thought it was so silly that he was fired. But they needed a scapegoat. I will push back on the Brett Brown thing because... What? He lost the locker room. He we'll did lose that. the locker room. That's a very real thing that can happen. And very often you saw him lose the coaching battle. He very often failed to make necessary adjustments. I saw Embiid get the ball like way above the three-point line way too often when you want to get an entry pass, get it to him in the post. He never made these little adjustments that seemed obvious because he never strayed yeah. from his plan. Like, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt of, like, it's hard to win the coaching battle when your players don't make sense together. Like, your pieces don't fit, so you're trying to cram square pegs into round holes. But you're right, like, there was some stuff that was obvious that he wasn't doing his best still. And So I think they can improve with a new coach, but I don't think he made them fail. And I guess I'll make this my final point in that... With a new coach, hopefully he can establish that culture of hard work, that culture of grinding. Let's win, and let's win now. Let's, f- And even when the odds are stacked up against us, we're not going to go down like we did last year. Let's fight, and let's just keep yeah. going. If he can really instill that in Ben Simmons and Embiid, maybe that can work then. It all starts yeah, with that I agree. culture. Don't let it come down to a lucky bounce. Maybe Eric Spolster will be available. Maybe, maybe Greg they Popovich. Can, maybe they can lure him away. Oh, yeah, dude. I think Brooklyn's a more attractive situation for Popovich, even though I don't think he's leaving. Well, But, hey, uh, maybe Jimmy Butler wants <laughs> to coach. Would, that'd be a great coaching call. Yeah, he already coaches that team on the floor anyway. Yeah, what a guy. All right, I think this was a great time. I appreciate you joining me for what will end up just under an hour on this episode of All Things Considered. Uh, For BTC, I'm Michael. And I'm Nick. I am Nick. Uh, Thank you for having me. (laughs) We'll work (laughs) on that. We'll learn our names. Till next time, thanks for listening.